Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And a very good morning to David Dollar, who's a senior fellow at the John L. Thornton's China Center at the Brookings Institute in Washington, D.C. David, first time on the show. We're gr- very, very pleased to have you join us. Yeah, I'm really excited, and uh, maybe we can do this again in the future. I hope so, and I have a feeling it's going to be a very interesting conversation because David, along with uh, two of his cohorts, uh, Tang Heiwei and Chen Wenjie, uh, wrote a fascinating paper on Chinese uh, overseas investment, foreign direct investment or overseas direct investment. Why is China investing in Africa evidence from the firm level? It's a little bit of a wonky title, but what we're going to try and do is kind of zero right in on some of the myths about Chinese investment. You know, David, when people think about the China-Africa economic relationship, always the trade numbers come to light. So this year, China is projected to do somewhere in the range of about $222 billion in trade, making it Africa's largest trading partner. And it's been that way since 2009. Then people take often a step and they go to the FDI space and they often think that China is, you know, as strong in FDI as they are in trade, which in fact they are not. And, and I guess I'd like to have you just, before we get too deep in the weeds on ODI, overseas direct investment, or outward direct investment, uh, FDI, first of all, what's the difference between ODI and FDI? Well, you know, I actually prefer to use FDI, foreign direct investment. You know, the Chinese have started calling their outward FDI, they call it ODI, which okay. is overseas direct investment. I think they're just trying to make a distinction because they themselves are the second biggest recipient of FDI in the world. So they just want to have a clear distinction. In the US, we would say inward FDI versus outward FDI. You know, they've chosen to call their outward FDI ODI, but okay. you know, as long as we all understand that, then we know what we're talking about. Listen, for the purposes of our conversation today, let, is it okay to go with FDI just because that's something that everybody kind of can rally around? Yeah, but okay. particularly because we're talking about Chinese FDI in Africa, so Fair it's enough. very clear what we're talking Good. about. So go ahead and, and, and tell us, what is the reality, particularly in terms of the volume and where China stacks against other uh, foreign countries and, and their FDI ranking in Africa? All right, so I like to say that China is both big and small in terms of its FDI in Africa. You know, it's small in the sense that if you take the Chinese figures on the total FDI in Africa, you know, you get a number around $25, $26 billion. It's only about 3% of the total stock of FDI in Africa. Now, there are always some problems with data, with counting these things. What I like to say is even if you double that, China is still a relatively small player in terms of the stock. You know, the stock's telling you what's been built up over a long period of time. China is a relative newcomer. And so China's contribution is really rather modest at this point. So a lot of this this focus on China taking over Africa doesn't really square with the data. How do they stack up compared to, say, the traditional European former colonial powers? Well, as I said, I like to say China's both big and small in the sense that they are devoting a larger share of their investment to Africa than most other major countries. Uh, I don't have an exact share figure, but I think a simple way to think about it is that China has more FDI in Africa than it has in the United States. And globally, that, that difference would be six to one in favor of the US. So you know, if you're thinking of European donors, uh, sorry, European countries, 
most of their FDI is in the United States, and, and they have a relatively small share in Africa. Uh, China is actually devoting more of its overseas investment to Africa, you know, which I think is interesting. You know, but as I said, it's still somewhere around three percent, or maybe you might raise that a little bit if you're, you know, worried about some of the data. It's still going to be small. Three percent, Cobus, is mind-bogglingly small, and yet yeah. when you compare it to the rhetoric. And the hysteria that we've heard over the years about the Chinese, you know, buying up Africa, taking over Africa, and yet it's just 3% of the overall FDI stock. Why do you think that this has captured people's imagination the way it has, and it's so distorted from reality? I, I think part of it is because it's this, this new narrative. I think people in Africa especially, uh, you know, kind of are so so tired and used to the idea of, of being dominated by the West. And, you know, kind of it, so it's, it's this kind of exciting new thing. Um, and, so in, and in the process, I think a, a lot of, for example, the distinction between FDI and trade, you know, kind of these, these kind of distinctions are frequently not really, not really made clear. Um, so, you know, kind of, so there is this idea that, that China is just big on, on every front. You know, kind of, and it's it's not kind of broken down in, in in a kind of a more nuanced way. But I think it's also it feeds into this this kind of idea, almost a, a, a fantasy that Africa can at some stage be free of the West or free of Europe, especially. Um, and as we see, it's not they're not there yet. Well, I think that that has a lot of uh, sense. Those those uh, comments. Uh, part of it is just the novelty. It's something new. It, you know, stocks are things that are built up over a long period of time. China's a relative newcomer. It's clearly made some very large investments that are capture, capturing people's attention. So people see the large investments in South Sudan or Angola, some of the relationship in Zambia or Zimbabwe. And, and you know, they kind of mentally scale that up and assume that China is a huge player all over Africa. But in some of the big economies like South Africa or Nigeria, you know, the Chinese really are late to the game, and there's already very large stocks of Western investment in those countries. It would, it would take a long time for China to get up to numbers that start competing with the Western investors in those countries. Tell us a little bit about what sectors and where the Chinese are investing in Africa. Is, I mean, I assume, and I'm not an expert in this, that it's predominantly in natural resource extraction. But at the same time, we see Huawei cell phone towers. We're seeing Hisense building factories, you know, Huajin building factories in Ethiopia. So it does seem to be more diverse than just natural resources. But how does it all break down? Uh, I completely agree with that. I think the main novelty of our paper is we go beyond those aggregate data. Uh, and we use this interesting database from the Chinese Ministry of Commerce. All the Chinese firms that invest around the world have to register so we have a database from 1998 to 2012, all the Chinese firms that invested in Africa, about 2,000 firms, but most of them have multiple projects. So it's 4,000 investment projects. We went to a lot of trouble to use the Chinese language descriptions to categorize them into the standard UN classification of industries. And so we, what we really think of this is capturing what your typical private sector firm is doing. Because a medium-sized private sector firm is going to count just as much as a you know giant giant Chinese uh, mining company. You know each one is going to be one investment. So it's important, I think, to understand that in the aggregate data, those big investments weigh a lot, and that's that's important to know. This is a different kind of data that telling you what's the typical medium-sized Chinese private firm doing. And there, we were surprised that 
you know, natural resources show up, but they're, you know, rather modest share of the investments, the, the, the number of investments. Uh, services are the overwhelming majority. Manufacturing sector is just as strong as the natural resource sector. So as you say, you're starting to get, you know, Chinese private investment in manufacturing firms. You know, we're able to break that down into pretty detailed sectors and then also look at what countries. Uh, and, and the kind of main point we take away from that is, is China seems to be investing everywhere in Africa. Uh, there are plenty of non-resource rich countries in Africa. You know, in some of them, countries like Ethiopia, Kenya, Uganda, there's actually, you know, quite an extensive amount of Chinese investment. A lot of that's in the service sector. Some of that's in the manufacturing sector. So, so I think we can add an interesting diversity to the existing story. But I emphasize, you know, the existing story of some some big Chinese investments in the mineral sector or energy. Of course, you know, there's some truth to that story. Um, I wonder if we could break it down, the, the distinction between China and other investors in terms of investment behavior. Um, this this really, really interesting, um, you know, kind of article makes a distinction between between investors that look for stability, political stability, and investors that look for rule of law. Um, on which side do the Chinese investors generally fall? Right. So with both our macro data and our micro data, you know, we find evidence that the Chinese investors focus more on political stability and their investment does not seem to correlate, you know, with the index of property rights rule of law that we're using. On the other hand, you know, the traditional Western investment correlates very highly with property rights rule of law. I don't think that's because of any ethical consideration, frankly. I think it's just the it's the experience of investors that it is hard to make money in environments of poor property rights and rule of law. China seems to be more of a risk-taking investor. I think that's an interesting story we're going to have to follow. You know, maybe the Chinese are willing to go into risky environments and they can make investments work, uh, and that's going to be mutually beneficial. It's also possible that after a few years, they're going to discover just why it is that Western investors tend not to go into the poor governance environment. So, but for the moment, you've, you've definitely got some difference in behavior. Uh, and, and I think that also contributes to the story of China and Africa, because clearly there are some countries where China is relatively large, and they do tend to be the countries that have poor property rights and rule of law. Let's stay with this question of governance for a little bit, because we've been reading over the past few years that China's appetite for the instability in places like the eastern Congo, South Sudan, uh, Mali, even Libya, is starting to wear a little bit thin, and there might be a, a flight to quality, if you will, in terms of stability, and that you know having good governance in places like Botswana uh, and, and Kenya and other places in Ghana uh, offers better re returns for Chinese investors rather than the Wild West, where they were in these more unstable areas. Do you see that over the past few years, or is that just rhetoric that the Chinese are kind of putting out? You know, we can't use our data to really look at that in any formal way. Uh, but from having discussed these results with African stakeholders, I do think we're starting to see evidence that, you know, China's having some bad experiences in places like Libya. Our research, by the way, is about all of Africa, not so-called sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, you know, China obviously lost some money in Libya. Their investments in South Sudan are not working out very well. I'm not sure about Angola. I, I think this would be a fascinating area of future resource. I, I do want to emphasize, though, the, the difference in Western versus Chinese behavior is relative. So if you actually 
if you look at the aggregate data and you ask, you know, where is the Chinese foreign investment in Africa? Well, there's just as much of it in the good governance environments as in the poor governance environments. So it's not like China's searching out uh, the poor rule of law environments. It's more that they're indifferent. You know, they're relaxed about it. The Western investment heavily concentrated in the better governance environments. And then the end result is China's relatively strong in places like Sudan and Angola. But it's still true. You know, China's single biggest uh, country of investment is South Africa, which is in the African context, uh, rated to have good governance. Nigeria is very high on the Chinese investment list. China and Nigeria is above the median uh, on these rule of law measures. So, so I want to emphasize that 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 China investing in the poor rule of law environments. That's a relative story. I wonder. You you make another very interesting distinction that I didn't completely understand. Where you said that. Um, that your research shows that Chinese firms invest um, in the more skill-intensive sectors in skill-abundant countries, but less capital-intensive sectors in capital-abundant countries. Um, I wonder if you could unpack that for a lay listener. Like, like, how does that breakdown work? Right. So having you know having categorized these investments in in you know different sectors, including uh, manufacturing uh, services, etc. We then, you know, we're, you know, we're nerdy economists. We're, we're looking at whether you can explain the allocation uh, across sectors, to, at least to some extent, by the factor endowments of the country. And that would come from the kind of classical, neoclassical economic theory that the factor endowments should reflect the comparative advantage, and, and it makes sense uh, for investors to exploit that. So I think we get a pretty nice result that that uh, the Chinese firms invest more in skill-intensive sectors in skill-abundant countries, right? So among these sectors, we can classify them based on the degree of skill of the labor force. And in the countries that have done the better job of educating their population, there's a bigger stock of human capital, that's where you tend to see the Chinese investments in the high-skill sector. So that's a yeah, simple, but I think not nice result given you know, when you ever have this many observations and complicated things going on, it's always a little bit surprising when when there's a nice, pretty clean result. Now, now let me just quickly add, we don't, you know, we don't get that with just looking at the capital intensity of sectors versus, um, you know, the capital abundance of countries. But, you know, we get the opposite result, which we uh, think is a plausible result, that the China is bringing capital to the capital scarce countries. You know, capital and skilled labor differ, and the capital is pretty mobile. Skilled labor is not really very mobile. Uh, so, so we interpret this as the Chinese investment responding to the factor endowments of the country, which is consistent with our normal profit maximizing model. You know, this is a, a very interesting time to be a sinologist, uh, to be studying China. Um, actually, let me rephrase that. It's always an interesting time to be studying China, but at the same time, right now, there's a lot that's going on. So you have the Chinese devaluation of the currency, which has had an immediate effect on some African economies. It's had an effect on lots of countries. Here in Vietnam, there's a lot of concern about the devaluation of the RMB. Uh, but that's going to make Chinese exports uh, much cheaper uh, and, and much more powerful in the world. At the same time, there's been this trend within China, or at least this pressure, to confront rising wages, rising environmental costs, to push some of the manufacturing overseas to lower-cost countries. Uh, Africa has always been this kind of eager kind of recipient of that, saying, 
please, please come here, <laughs> you know. But at the same time, Africa may not be ready for the type of manufacturing that China currently does, and some, simply because it doesn't have the power generation, it doesn't have the ports, it doesn't have the infrastructure to support manufacturing on the scale of what China currently does today. What do you see in terms of the trends regarding this outsourcing of Chinese manufacturing in light of the current Chinese economic difficulties and the devaluation of the RMB? Right. So those are all really great, complicated questions. My first response is, is looking toward the long term. Right. It makes sense for manufacturing to move out of China. You know, China is going to have a very extreme demographic change now. Its labor force has already peaked and is starting to decline. Most of the labor force growth we see in the world in the next 20 years is going to be in, in, in Africa, frankly. You know, so there's this huge potential for Africa to become a more important producer in general, including in the manufacturing sector. And some of that could definitely happen through Chinese investment, you know, China moving some of the capital stock from China to Africa. It's, that's, that's definitely win-win. But as you say, in the short run, the Chinese economy is slowing down and they've gotten a little bit you know, disturbed about that, to be frank. I mean, they're worried about how quickly their economy is slowing down, particularly the industrial sector. The service sector is actually growing pretty healthily in China. So it's not, it's not an alarming situation, but clearly their economic uh, technocrats got concerned. I think the devaluation, you know, frankly, I think it's, it's something of a mistake. So far, it's accumulated to about 3% against the U.S. dollar. And as you say, many other developing countries are, are devaluing in, in response. So China's not going to really gain any competitiveness against other countries as a result of this, unless they went a lot further. And frankly, it's really tough for them to justify going a lot further with devaluation. They still have an enormous trade surplus. It's growing this year. So I think those longer-term trends are going to dominate you know, I think the long-term trend will be for the currency to continue to appreciate, for some manufacturing production to move out of China. You know, and as you say, it's tough. There's a tough investment climate in many African countries, so I think we shouldn't be naive. But this is a great opportunity for Africa. And the Chinese, of course, they can help with some of the things like power generation, transport ports. Uh, so I, th I predict we find some African economies, you know, that really in some sense, get their act together and use some of the Chinese financing to improve infrastructure and start attracting more manufacturing investment and build up their own domestic manufacturing. And, and I realize that's, that's going to take a while. It's not going to happen overnight. But if you don't have that kind of process in the next 20 years, you know, you're going to have, you know, 400 million people join the labor force in Africa. If there isn't significant industrialization and development more generally, it's really hard to see what you're going to do with 400 million new workers. And do you foresee that actually happening? Do you do you foresee um, African African economies kind of making that shift? And which African economies are you most optimistic about in, in that in that sense? Right. So I'm I am someone who looks a lot at the data. I have a modest amount of experience working in Africa, but it's 10 years old. When I look at the data, you know, African growth rates accelerated quite dramatically between the 90s and the 2000s. I think China gets some credit for that. You know, Chinese demand for African exports pushing up product, uh, pushing up prices, excuse me, and, and volumes. Uh, but I also think if you look at the data, 
Quite a few African countries have improved their governance according to these measures of property rights and rule of law. You've got better fiscal situations. You've had lower inflation, better exchange rate management. So I think there's been significant progress, and you already see acceleration of growth. Uh, and now I think a lot of the issues are these investment climate issues that we both mentioned. You know, can you get reliable power? Do the ports work? Can you move things? I, I would be surprised if you did not get some coastal countries, you know, jumping on that bandwagon. Uh, East Africa, I think you've got better governance in some of the countries. And you have that proximity to China. People don't realize, you know, East Africa is pretty close to China. Um, South Africa, that's already the biggest recipient of Chinese investment. I know less about West Africa, but I, I don't in the data. I, you know, I don't see much progress ex except in some isolated, you know, some individual cases such as Ghana. But I don't see the same progress in the data in West Africa that you see elsewhere in some of the continent. You may see some in Nigeria. You know, Chinese purchases of Nigerian oil have gone up considerably and making up for the uh, vacuum that was created out of the United States, uh, more or less abandoning Nigerian because of the own shale revolution back home. Uh, but that, that's trade more than investment there. Um, I'd like to just kind of end the show a little bit on a, on a, on a crystal ball kind of thing. Um, looking at the Ernst & Young Attractiveness Survey 2015, which is really one of the best reports on, on all FDI in Africa, uh, they rank China as number seven overall in FDI, far behind the United States, the UK, South Africa, Germany, and the UAE. That's one that I didn't actually anticipate. Um, and so where do you see five years from now China ranking vis-a-vis uh, -vis these other powers and its role in, in African FDI. What should we, if we come back to you in five years for another podcast and you've, you, know, you and your colleagues have written another report, what are we going to be saying? It's a safe bet that China's going to move up in those rankings because it is, in, in general, you know, moving ahead and becoming one of the major sources of, of FDI in the world. Uh, and and their their share that their own share that tends to go to Africa is a little bit higher than others. So yeah, they're definitely going to move up that ranking. I, I I can't tell you where exactly they'll be, but but I, it's going to be related to their management of their domestic economy. And the best scenario is that their domestic economy does quite well, which in some ways tends to slow down the going out. You know, if the if the domestic economy is really bad. You're going to see a lot of capital outflow from China quickly, but that'll be a kind of a one-time phenomenon, and it, you, you won't have such a big economy, big growing economy in the bad scenario. So I hope we get the positive scenario where China continues to do quite well, meaning growing six to seven percent. It gradually becomes the biggest source of FDI in the world, but its own domestic economy still seems pretty healthy. And then you get a gradual transformation where I think the demographics are very powerful, and a lot of Asia's got demographics that are going to work against them. It's just parts of South Asia and Africa that are going to have labor force growth. So, you know, I, I'm optimistic in the sense that there's this great opportunity. You know, it's certainly one part of that is China investing in Africa and expanding its relationship. But in the end, the benefits will depend primarily on African countries' own institutions and policies. So I hope, you know, hope we continue to see what's what's visible in the data that you've got African countries reforming and creating better investment climates. Well, it seems like Africa could win either way. If the Chinese economy tanks, then a lot of that outbound capital may end up in Africa. But if the Chinese economy is strong, 
then it seems like commodity demand would be very high and trade would actually increase. So if Africa can play its cards right, it could benefit in either circumstance. Yes, but if the Chinese economy does, can, you know, continues to slow down, if you get this this famous hard hard landing that people talk about, you know, already commodity prices are low, but they could frankly go a lot lower. That's going to create some problems. There might be a big rush of Chinese capital going out, but I think over time there'd be less of a sustained flow of capital coming out of China, just because it, it won't be as successful and large in econ- as as successful and large an economy it, as it would be if it continues to grow. And it would, Remember, it would hurt everybody else with yeah. it, too, probably. Yeah. So demand yeah. in the U.S. and Europe would also be affected. Yep, you're, you're right. So why is China investing in Africa is the article written by David Dollars, a senior fellow at the John L. Thornton China Center at the Brookings Institute, and also with Tang Heiwei, who's an assistant professor of international economics at the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University, and Chen Wenjie, an economist at the International Monetary Fund and an assistant professor of international business at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. It's really one of the best articles on on Chinese FDI in Africa. Um, It's an important subject in part because a lot of people get this confused. And there is an enormous amount of mythology about it. So uh, both Kobus and I highly recommend diving into this topic so that people don't misunderstand trade and investment as they are radically different concepts. And David and his colleagues did an excellent job of, uh, of, of kind of just, uh, you know, breaking it all down and, where, and, 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 de- and breaking all the myths away. And I think it was really fantastic. So, David, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for all the great questions and comments. It's our pleasure. And Kobus, if people want to follow what you're doing these days, what's the best way that they can stay in touch? Um, I'm on our Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And we aggregate a 24-hour feed of China Africa news items. And I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me on Twitter as well at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm tweeting the top China and Africa stories almost every day. Every weekend, Kobus and I put together a, a newsletter on China Africa news. Uh, only about four or five stories, so it's, it's manageable. You don't have to kind of develop vote too much time to it, but allows you to stay on top of the kind of the big stories of the week that was and the week that's coming. If you'd like to sign up for that, just head over to our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com. We've got a sign-up bar right at the top. Just put in your email address and we'll send it to you. We promise no spam, no nothing nothing nefarious like that. Uh, also, if you want to follow this podcast, just go over to iTunes, type in China Africa, and you'll find us right away. And we would be so grateful if you could leave us a comment or a rating because it makes it uh, much easier for other people to find the show in the future. And we'd love to have your feedback. So we'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.